Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the third season of the Web Perspectives podcast. My name is Mike, and in this episode, Sean and I get the opportunity to talk to Mark Dodd, a well-seasoned PMP certified project manager. Have you ever wondered how project managers handle multiple competing priorities? Is there a better organizational system than sticking post-it notes to your monitor? What's the best way to go about getting those pesky PDUs and what even is a PDU anyway? We asked Mark all these questions and more in this one-hour episode of Web Perspectives. Hello and welcome to Web Perspectives, the go-to podcast for instant web development tips, tricks, career advice, and ways to supercharge your web development career. Put the soft skills back into software and supercharge your web development career. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> round two. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back, Mark. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So a little backstory here, because some of our listeners may not know, this is important detail. We actually recorded with you, Mark, a few weeks ago, and we had a little bit of a mishap where we lost the recordings. So, so here we are again, another time, another round to uh, pick your brain again. To go through the process one more time, right? So... <laughs> I promise to ask better questions this time. <laughs> the, the questions asked last time were perfect, so I appreciate it. Yeah, podcasting is a whole other thing because you probably, as a listener, you hear all of us talking and bantering about web technologies, and in this case, it'll be more along the lines of product development and product management. But there's a lot that goes behind the scenes, and so we end up discarding certain podcast episodes or editing and, and a lot of stuff happens and especially with the audio recording part it's really good to have some patience there so definitely thank you for following through with round two with us mark it's really nice to have you on again yeah thank you so much and again thank you for stewarding me through it like you said there's a lot of new technology a lot of new things to learn so it really kind of stretches your mind and your imagination a little bit so i appreciate you guys Right. So yeah, hopefully we can give a little bit of a background for our listeners. I know that we met at Startup Grind, right? It was Startup Grind. Yeah. So that's a little bit of an event here in Calgary. I believe they have semi-annual events where entrepreneurs meet, but we connected based on your experience with product management. So you're really into the PM side of things, right? Yeah, really into the project management side of things. And, you know, with that, just to give a little bit of an intro and a little bit of a background as well. So I'm a project manager by trade, and I also own my own company called Concept Projects. And Concept is a full service project management consultant company. And we're located here in Calgary, Alberta and kind of opened our doors in 2012. So we've been around for a little while. And really what we do at Concept is we act as the project manager owner's representative. So a little bit of a niche market, but what does that mean? It means that we're responsible for representing the owner, the project owner in all aspects of the project from start to end type thing. And typically we're going to act as that liaison between the project owner and other stakeholders such as engineers, contractors, developers, consultants, suppliers, etc. So that's a little bit of a backstory of concept and my project management connection to it. So a lot of your days communicating with a bunch of different stakeholders across different backgrounds and each of them have different needs and wants. How do you keep that organized? 
do you have a lot of little post-it notes all over your monitor or something like what <laughs> yeah a lot, a lot of little post-it notes definitely help and you know it's such a great question how do you keep that all organized how do you keep all your stakeholders organized and you know it starts off really organically right you're going to meet with the owner you're going to have this connection you're both going to agree to move into the project together and then as you both know and understand in your experience the team starts to grow fairly rapidly pretty quick so having a stakeholder analysis a stakeholder plan really starts to set that foundation to saying you know who's going to be involved who are those key players what are some of their primary communication needs? How do you orientate yourself to their needs? And what does that kind of look like? So for me, I'm a little bit older school in, in that respect. I'm going to use a stakeholder plan and start to gather the names and put together those communication channels so that I'm meeting each stakeholder's requirements. So does that look like a stakeholder plan .io type website application thing? Do you have a desktop app? iPad app? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great, great question again. So usually I'll have a fairly simplistic way of going about it. I'll start in an Excel format in a very organic, like you said, sticky note type of way. That's how I'll start to build it out. And then from there, I'll pick the applicable channels to build up the team. So one channel could be in Slack, for example. Another channel could be very formalized meetings that you may want to sit down with the team face to face. It really starts to get down to who are your stakeholders and how do they like to communicate? What's the best methodology for them? And so, for example, if you're sitting with your financial sponsor and your controllers, that's probably going to be a face-to-face -face meeting in my realm. And remember, I'm going to come at this from a more of a traditional project management perspective. So in that respect, if I'm meeting with my financial controllers, that's going to be face-to-face. -face. We're going to be doing some type of share screen and, and bringing up various types of cost formulating templates that we're going to sit down and talk through in that environment. That's a very formal meeting and we want to make sure there's no nuances left as we talk about some of those really particular budget items and some of that could be zoom as well but really i really stick to in a very organic style excel template and i will transition that later as i build out the team and i'll use figma i don't know if you yeah. gentlemen are okay yeah if you're familiar with it I, i'm learning it a little bit but i'm familiar with it enough that i can kind of use it and make it a little bit fancy and do all the things i need to do with it so great question, Mike. Coming in strong. Yeah, yeah. I've, had, I've had some practice. Now you're <laughs> You've had some practice. <laughs> yeah, great question on a Sunday evening. I mean, that, that we're coming in pretty good. Okay, so let's talk about the Excel spreadsheet. So you're mapping the requirements on this Excel spreadsheet, right? Does that sound correct? That sounds correct, yeah. And what would the columns be for your Excel spreadsheet? Does it depend on the company or do you generally follow more or less the same format? For stakeholder management, I generally follow the same format because there are just going to be those typical who, what, when, where, why type questions that you're going to want to ask. The hardest part for me is beyond the modality of how you're formatting your stakeholders out, whether it be on Excel, whether it be on Figma, whether it be on a Slack channel or whatever communication mode that you're bringing them out. It's the hardest part for me when it comes to stakeholder management is actually just finding the stakeholders themselves. Meaning 
when you first get engaged with a client, they're probably just going to give you right away a couple quick stakeholders like this person's going to be involved, that person's going to be involved, and, and you may want to talk to this department. But it takes, I find, a couple iterations before you actually gather all of the stakeholders. And again, you may be interfacing with finance, but no one said, hey, law, you need to go over and law needs to be part of these early conversations or the environmental and regulatory component. They need to to bolt into your team because this is going to take a, a fairly significant regulatory effort. So I find it's beyond your methodology you're putting down from Excel or whatever. It's just actually taking the time and making sure that you've got all of those stakeholders. And once you have them, then it's building out those questions of, again, you know, what really important information out of the project that's going to generate a lot of communication over its life cycle. What's really important for you as the she advisor, so the safety advisor, what do you specifically need so that you are always making the best decisions throughout the life cycle of the project? And the same for the legal representative, the regulatory the engineers, whoever may be, again, bolting onto your team. So for me, it's that discovery process is really, really important. And it takes a little bit of time. It's not always something that just, I think you'll sometimes you'll see it on a schedule. You know, you'll see stakeholder analysis, stakeholder development, stakeholder engagement, you know, five days. Well, that takes a little bit longer sometimes depending on the complexity of the project you're dealing with. So hopefully that answered your question. And I know I dove into a few other modalities there, but I felt I felt that was the important part of that stakeholder analysis and finding who those end users are and what those requirements are. I'd be curious to know if you've ever come across a stakeholder who was simultaneously critical to the understanding of the project and yeah. also refuses to get involved. Ooh, that's a big question. I'm trying to think back. Maybe you even just break down like what we mean by stakeholder, because I know that even I wasn't too familiar with the term until working at a large company. But for those people who might work at a smaller company or may not have too much experience with the terminology, what do we really mean here when we say stakeholder? Do we mean critical advisors in business that make important decisions, kind of like when you see like a board of directors and that kind of thing in large corporations where they have some sway in the decisions of the software product? That's such an important question because really anyone who's connected to that project, who's going to have some type of influence, whether that be internal, external, and connected to that project is essentially going to be a stakeholder in that project with varying levels of obviously connectivity to that project. Meaning, for your example, if you're a business case owner, you're going to be highly connected as a stakeholder to that project. Yeah. If this project is coming into your community and it's influencing the way your community works, operates, for example, if it's a brand new multiplex building, you're going to be an external stakeholder, but you're also going to be highly connected to that project as well. So it really takes a broad perspective to really look at who all those stakeholders are and, and what influence internal and external are you going to have on those parties. So you know, that kind of gets back to my other statement saying it's not just going to happen kind of right away. It takes time to really 
sit back and be somewhat creative in your mind and saying, you know, what is this project really intending to do? And who are these people that it's going to touch? And what aspects of that are they going to be? And anyone who sits within that realm essentially will be a stakeholder in your project. So it can be quite narrow and other times it can be quite broad depending on your scope. Right, right. It makes a lot of sense when you put it like that. I, I more approached it from the smaller company, smaller business perspective of, well, I'm just one developer working for this marketing agency. That was one of my first jobs. And in a way, I was the stakeholder because, you know, they had a design and everything. So I guess the people who created the design, essentially, they made those design decisions. But eventually, I, as a developer, had the responsibility of making those technical decisions. So as a developer, are you really a stakeholder or are we talking about the people who maybe sit on the board of directors or the people who have invested in a company in the business and have the ability to inform the decisions of the company because they've invested so much money or they've invested in the stock of the company? Yeah. Okay. I think I'm starting to understand the modality of the question. For me, it really, I think if I'm to break this out in my mind, you're really starting to get into some classification of, yeah, you know, the executive team, the executive sponsor, the project sponsor team, you know, those are kind of maybe be the gatekeepers, so to speak. And they're going to hold financial fiduciary responsibilities within the project. They're probably going to be the ones who are going to give you the yes or no if you want to proceed, how much funds you're going to want to expend within this scope. So, yes, they kind of have that maybe murky dual classification between project sponsor, project executive, project gatekeeper, whatever you may want to classify them as. And they are stakeholders within the project as well. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it kind of, and probably that's where it gets a little bit confusing sometimes. So really what we're starting to cross into is, you know, you're starting to identify your stakeholders and now you're starting to assign roles and responsibilities to them based upon that analysis that we had kind of talked about earlier saying, okay, I kind of understand that you're going to be the executive and, you know, I'm going to meet with you at very specific times throughout this project and present to you yeah. very specific components of milestones that you would want to see and sign off on before you advance more funding forward and more resources and more effort and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think I may have gotten that for you there, hopefully. <laughs> I think so. Maybe just an example would help to solidify it in my mind. Sure thing. I don't want to linger too much on this, but I do think it's really important to distinguish between a stakeholder and the other fiduciary members of the staff, like the financial team. Sure thing. So on my last project, we were putting in some infrastructure into an existing building. So the executive team in that respect held a couple different positions because it was part of an international project as well from a governance perspective. So we had an executive team that sat, a project executive team that sat within an organization at the project sponsor level, the project gatekeeper level, the project executive level. And then there was two entities or two sides to that based upon the Canadian and and the U.S. counterparts. And so they would essentially qualify me to, again, initiate that project and allow that spend profile to kind of move forward based upon the project estimates that I put together. From there, once I start to bring in, once I got that authority 
and the endorsement of that authority to actually start to move the monies around, that's when I would hire in the consultant team, the contractor, the subcontractors and the suppliers to actually develop and execute the project from that side. And, and then within that, so from a stakeholder perspective, I had some really important stakeholders and business units that were affected throughout that project as well. And one of those was the facilities team that ran and operated the building. We were bolting into the main water supply system. So all of a sudden you have this expansion of our stakeholders because you have to do a fairly significant shutdown of the building's water systems. That affects some critical infrastructure components. Obviously that affects just some normal operating components water, coffee, yeah. sinks, toilets, etc. Water pressure in the building, all those kind of aspects. So when you start to think about putting in this piece of infrastructure, and it was a fairly big water softener at the time, all of a sudden you have a lot of stakeholders yeah. that you're affecting. And now you have to think of your project in how do I actually implement this without disrupting their normal workflow, their normal business, their normal operations, how to ensure it's done without costing the facilities team an excessive amount of money because you're draining five buildings worth of water when maybe there's a more sustainable and better way of doing business. So you really start to delve yourself out into ensuring that it's regulatory compliant, ensuring that it's done safely, ensuring critical systems are maintained ensuring operations can continue. And in this instance, some of the critical systems were connected to the data center. And we had to make sure that those systems were operational during that time. So this one little project starts to, in a complex operating environment, starts to get really, really deep. And I think that's some of the creativity that needs to come in from the project team as you sit down and start to saying, you know, what are we really touching here once we do this project? Where are all the second and third layer effects? What are they going to create? And I think that's really when you start to say, well, these are the other stakeholders that maybe we should be talking to that I never really thought of maybe when I first heard this project and I first sat down and and started to scope things out. So for me, it takes really some detailed thinking. It takes the team coming together. It takes really some gentle footsteps in the beginning to make sure you're just not rushing to a solution too quickly because inevitably in a build environment as we operate in today, it's inevitably integrated and complex. And you really got to kind of take time to think about that when you're working in those environments. So hopefully, yeah, I danced around a little bit there, but I tried to tie a story together to to make that make sense. That example really helped to solidify what it means to have stakeholders, these unintended perhaps consequences of what you do and the people who get affected by those consequences So that that really helped me to understand. Now, of course, it sounds like we do sometimes get stakeholders who don't want to get involved. And so does that happen? And if so, to what extent? It does happen. It has happened. And sometimes it comes from an honest place, meaning they may just have a bigger priority project on their plate and not that yours isn't, a priority, but there could be maybe a bigger, again, regulatory or business case in front of them 
that just requires more of their attention. So this is where the stakeholder analysis really, really comes into play. So when I encounter this, there's a moment of pause that you need to kind of go through as a project manager and the project team. And you really got to step back and say, how important is the stakeholder to this project? How much influence does the stakeholder going to have? How much responsibility and accountability is wrapped around this stakeholder's involvement? Can we aid this in some way and put together really smart communication channels for them so that their time is used in the best way possible so that we can continue to move this project down the road and allow us to execute through these really important milestones? Or is this stakeholder's involvement in this time absolutely necessary and it requires a high level of involvement? Then in that case, if the stakeholder was not prepared to give that level of attention, that's what I would bring to their awareness saying, I would probably recommend maybe moving this a little left down the calendar, a little left, a little right, because I think it requires a lot more of your attention and I can see that your attention is really needed over here right now. And that may be a bigger priority. So maybe if we just move this around in, in your schedule and how can we meet your scheduling needs a little bit, that may help. And I find just allowing that conversation to occur really opens up some mediums because in the stakeholders mind, they may not see that they need that much involvement or they need to be there that often. So another example, in this instance, I really needed a stakeholder. Uh, it was an engineer. I really needed his involvement. He was a, from the business side as well. And the gentleman had a lot of experience. So I really needed his technical expertise to help overcome a technical obstacle. And he was just flat out busy. Like, I think everyone needed, you know, he was one of those guys that had been there, done that forever. So... I think everyone, someone, everyone's kind of pulling him in different directions. And in this instance, he actually aware that he was being pulled in five, six different directions. And he said, I can't be there, but I'm going to be there when those final decisions are going to be made. And in this instance, I'm going to elect to connect you with this person who's on my team. So all of a sudden he came up with this kind of ability to overcome that obstacle, knowing that he was going to still Stuart and be involved, but his team allowed that project to start to kind of move forward under a different level of guidance. So he stacked his stakeholder capabilities in that way and it worked out quite well. So as the project manager, as a project team, just stepping back and analyzing what do I need from my stakeholder? They're pretty good, I find. They're going to find a, a throughput. They're going to find a way for you. And they're there to enable and help you because ultimately they want the project to go forward in some capacity as well, right? So I find they're pretty intuitive. They're going to help out. But it, to your point, it does happen. <laughs> I mean, it does occur. Not everyone is always doing backflips and, you know, doing a big cheer in the sky for, for your project. Everyone's really busy all the time, right? So... And, and I think in it just really simplifying that process for them too and not overloading them with volumes of communication. I think as a, as a project team, as a project manager, 
you have to really sing, you know, where's that funnel of information that's really timely and important for this stakeholder so they can maximize their ability to make a very, very productive decision. That was great. Thanks, man. That was, uh, it was I think the, the project managers I've spoken to in the past and who've done interviews in the past tend to come from the happy, shiny rainbows spectrum. And they don't really start to get into some of the more challenging aspects of the job because it's a really challenging job. And not just from a technical perspective, I think, being the one who has to communicate between business units and tech units or engineering units who don't speak the same language. But also sometimes there's just those people out there who just cannot get involved, even though they are critically a part of the process for any number of reasons. I've never actually run into anybody who doesn't want to get involved, but I have run into people who are, like you say, who are incredibly busy and it is a challenge to try to get their feedback. And sometimes all you need to do is just get them to say, yes, that's fine. Yes. You you just got (laughs) to get the okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like your solution of like what's timely and what's important as far as communicating with them goes and breaking that down. I really like the solution there of sending somebody else from the team who's also familiar with the project, but coming in and making the clutch play, if you will, on the big important questions. That was really helpful. I'm going to take all that. I'm going to write it down here and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take that approach on Monday. I appreciate that advice. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's very kind, Mike. And as you were speaking, something that just really kind of came to my mind as you're kind of walking through that, I can kind of see this scenario maybe evolving as that stakeholder is pressed for time and is under magnitudes of pressure, whatever that may be, as maybe a helping tool for the project manager that might be listening right now to saying your team is going to be under pressure as well. And you have to be very mindful because if you forget because I think I'm just going to back up a little bit when you do have those stakeholders that are really influentially powerful meaning they're the yes or no's like you were saying but their time is really limited sometimes you can forget as a project manager to include them you know if you're dealing with a let's say an 18 month project and you may not be speaking to them very regularly so as a reminder, if you don't draw up that stakeholder engagement plan and put forward those critical meeting templates, you may forget to provide that influential stakeholder with something that is critical, this critical piece of information, and that could possibly ruin your project just by the fact that you have to be remindful of how often you're communicating with them and not forget about them because their time is very, very limited. And I find it's easier when you're communicating with someone weekly and, you know, let's say you have a stakeholder and every Monday you meet 15 minutes and you're giving them a briefing and you're giving them an update and they're reading your project notes on whatever online platform that you're utilizing at that time. And, you know, they're coming to you with questions. So it's, it's very organic. It's mutual. It's back and forth. It's happening all the time. But if you're only meeting with a stakeholder quarterly, it can be easy to forget some of those critical pieces of information that happened over that quarter. So you have to be really mindful about what does this person really, really need to know? What's super critical for them? And make sure you don't forget because, again, that could derail your project immensely because they could be influential and powerful. Yeah, you talk about time. meetings a lot. And I think everybody who's listening right now has been in at least one meeting in their life. 
I was, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years into my career before I realized that meetings had agendas. <laughs> and, and that people had an agenda with the meeting because there was a purpose to having the meeting. And uh, I was shocked to find out that there's a whole meta, if you will, to meetings and how they're approached. And I was wondering, as a project manager going into a meeting, you probably call a meeting, you probably put together the point of the meeting. What are some of the tips that you have for people who organize a meeting and as well for people who are attending a meeting to make the most of that time that they're together? Yeah. And the, yeah, another just gem of a question too, Mike. And yes, as the project manager, you are having an insane amount of meetings because again, depending on the complexity of your project, you probably could have, let's say, 80 project participants at various levels. So, you know, you don't want them all in the same meeting. Your stakeholders are going to have some, your consultants are going to have others, your contractors, whoever it may be. You want to be very specific with your content to them. So you're not wasting everybody's time. You're not calling these meetings that are for an hour and they turn out to be four hours and you know, you've been sitting in your chair and your legs go numb and, and all of those things and you, you lose focus and, and you're just like, I'm hungry, I want to go for coffee, whatever it may be. So when I think of uh, determining a meeting, I want to make sure I, I get the most out of it. And what's the first thing I think about is how long should this meeting be? Is this a, a real quick 15 minute, I just need to chat with somebody meeting or is this a very formal one hour documented meeting and if so who are the absolute required people that need to be inside of that meeting i think that's kind of the first and foremost that goes through my mind and then you definitely want to be organized with some agenda topics and i think people don't really give that enough emphasis sometimes because in reality what are you doing with that agenda you are allowing your project meeting participants to prepare themselves to saying, okay, this is what Mark really wants to kind of talk about. This is what he feels is important. And then that allows the feedback prior to the meeting to occur saying, I also want to bring this topic up. This has occurred this week and can we find time for this? And then that allows me to say, okay, well, let's maybe move this piece out. I can handle that later and send an update and let's maybe move this new topic in because it's kind of top of mind and it's really, really important and that we deal with it right away. So just that little level of interaction of agenda helps really get people organized and tuned in for what's about to happen. And then obviously that creates flow for your meeting as well. But when I first start a meeting, I really like to ensure that within the first five minutes, I'm probably just going to do a quick round table. So the meeting is set, you know, everyone is there. Oh, yeah, I kind of want everyone to just how are you feeling today? Give me something positive, just real 30 seconds. I want to get everyone involved right away. I want everyone to kind of say something and speak because research shows that when you get people engaged right away, they're going to be actually engaged throughout the entirety of the meeting. Their minds are going to switch on. They're going to be a little bit more ready to talk. And you want people to start the meeting in that modality. You don't want people just be waiting. Well, I don't talk till 45 minutes into the meeting. So I'm going to be just on my phone. And when it's my time to talk, I'll poke my head up and say my few words and then back down to my phone again. So you really want to engage them right out of the gate. 
and help them and know that whatever they're contributing to that meeting is very, very valuable. So it helps bring that really kind of forward, I find. And I've been doing it for a very, very long time. And it really helps me set the tone myself for my meeting because I could be presenting in front of many, many people. So it's nice to, you you could have four or five people on the phone. You may not have met them before. It's nice to hear their voice, get them engaged, let them know that you care about them, let them know that they're part of the team as well. I I really find it, it upticks engagement quite a bit. And then during the conducting of the meeting, sometimes things can start to go left, go a little bit right. You want to kind of have a fairly good understanding of when to pull things in park, when to allow meetings just to become organic, when to allow people time to get their ideas out, because not everyone can pull their idea within two seconds quickly. Sometimes people really just need to talk things through. And I think that just gets to understanding who's on your team and saying, okay, this person, they can really craft their idea quickly and it makes a lot of sense. It comes across the table fast. Well, this other team, they like to talk it out. They like to kind of back and forth a little bit. And from that, something wonderful comes forward. So it's kind of understanding that as you grow together and then allowing time for it. And I tried to craft my meeting in that way. So whether that's a series of icebreakers, jokes, tell me something fun and cool that's happened to you, or I want to know a little bit more about you as a person outside of the project, I kind of use those things to kind of help. And the last thing I do is, as the meeting is going through its natural flow, is I'm more than likely going to produce the meeting minutes myself. I usually don't task that off. And if I do, that means I really, really value you as a person because A, people just don't like doing that. (laughs) Yeah. They just don't. (laughs) Right? So as a leader, you want to take that so that you can kind of have some ownership of it and say, I know this is not something my team enjoys doing. So I'm going to kind of maybe take that and take it on myself. But in reality, what are you using those minutes for? In some respects, you're using them to record the meeting. If you're contractually connected together, obviously that formalizes the fact that you've all met and discussed very certain topics that are contractually obligated. But more importantly, as the project manager, as you're listening to your team more than you're talking, because again, this meeting is about them, you're pulling out those key action items and they're saying them as they're kind of going along and they're telling you, well, this is important, that's important, and this is important. So it's your job to really capture all those down, summarize them and saying, you know, this is kind of what I heard you say. This is what I feel some of your action items are. Please let me know if if I got these right or wrong. But really that helps galvanize your team forward. It lets them know you've been listening to them and it reminds them, hey, oh yeah, right, I got to I forgot. I forgot I got to I got to get this done. And it allows them to kind of get organized. That's something I've done for a very, very long time is organize the minutes on behalf of those meetings. And it takes a lot out of the project manager. You're frantically typing. You're trying to listen, trying to keep things organized and flowing and people engaged. But really, that's what's most important is just keeping that team engaged on whatever that most important topic is at that time, because they're the ones that are going to 
ultimately create the solution around that problem statement and help provide the path forward there as well. That was a killer tip. Like sync up with your team during every meeting and it empowers you to have a communication beforehand to discuss the problems that will come up in those meetings. I cannot name or list the amount of meetings that I've attended where times the meetings do go off track and they derail. And it sounds a lot like you act in, at least in your role as a product manager, as a moderator. So you help to guide the conversation and your most important goal ends up relating to listening to the people who implement the decisions that you've made as a product manager. You have to listen a lot more than you speak as a project manager because I think ultimately the team around you, they're the technical experts, but you're often seen as the one doing the most communication and the most talking. And that can become almost like your own internal bias sometimes. You're like, there's a lot to talk about. I got to do all the talking. I don't think that brings the best part of your team forward. I really think engaging the team and their knowledge and really helping even some of the people that maybe do less talking come forward or allowing them post-meeting to submit some of their suggestions and you add those into the minutes saying, This came in later and this is a great add-on and this is a great part of something we can discuss because some people don't like to really talk out sometimes in meetings. So, but they do, I mean, everyone's got great ideas. So how do you enable those people to kind of communicate as well? Yeah, I know at my last job as well, we had a lot of people that would keep quiet and would only share their ideas when prompted. And so it helps to have a little bit of structure to give everybody the chance to vocalize their concerns and their suggestions when it comes to solving a certain problem or vocalizing a problem in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just just giving time and space for people to kind of think. And some people like to think about a problem too. Yeah. Um, I think one great example is risk management. I find almost on every project I go into, when we start the risk management process, it's real quiet. (laughs) It's really, really a very, very quiet house, a quiet meeting. So you really have to really engage people with specific questions and let them know that this risk management meeting, for example, is really to define mitigations that are going to help the project out and take away some of that fear that comes with, well, if I tell you the mitigation, am I accountable, responsible for it? So really setting up that team environment helps to create those solutions because, again, ultimately the team is going to have the solutions and it's for you to kind of bring them forward. So when we do risk, that's one of the ones where it starts very, very quiet and you have to really help your team gauge into that topic, understand what you're trying to do. And then in that instance, for example, when I know it's going to be a a little bit of a, a tough meeting, I'll probably start that first risk identification meeting off with some lesson learned from other projects and I'll pull those forward and saying okay I know risk is a little bit of a sticky topic I know a lot of us don't understand it and it kind of comes with its own specialization depending upon what you're specifically talking about but ultimately as a team here's what we're going to try to do and you bring forward that learning and saying here's a very technical problem that occurred or a safety issue that affected people on the team. 
here's how they mitigated that technical issue and that safety problem. And here's why it worked well. And really spending that first half of the meeting or even the first few meetings, again, just bringing forward those examples so that it gives your team time to engage those parts of their mind saying, okay, this is what we're going to do in this meeting. This is what this meeting is for. It's a little bit different than the other meetings uh, where we follow a different format. Here, we really got to put our thinking hats on. And I find that as that develops, those types of risk meetings, by quarter way through the project, I can start to really get into some really technical questions. Like from a structural perspective, how would you analyze this risk? Again, as they've gained experience in that type of meeting, what are some of the risks that you pull out if we were to do this mitigation? How do you think about it? And I think that just all of those types of really specific types of questions comes after there's a level of comfort on the team. After everyone starts to gel together and you start to diminish those tendencies to say this may be used against you type thing. And in reality, we're just trying to find the best path forward in that instance to keep everyone safe, for example. I love that idea of normalizing the discussion on the risk at the beginning of a discussion about the risk management. But I also wonder if that prevents or that reduces the amount of creativity within the group, because you've already mentioned a way of solving the particular problem or addressing the problem. And so do you find that that ever affects or reduces the amount of creativity when it comes to quote unquote, putting on your thinking hats, does that help more than it prevents creativity or does it give that a-okay that yes, we can talk about this risk and that pro outweighs the con of potentially limiting creativity, if at all? I, I, I like that, Sean. I find the pro outweighs the con and the way I find it outweighs it is that it allows your team to engage fully, all of them. And it really starts to bring all of them together to solve the problem. And I really like your thought around creativity because that's ultimately what a project is. It's you're creating something as a team. You're, you've been brought together to bring something to life, whatever that may be. And I think continuously tapping into that creativity through those different channels is really, really important. And giving people space to be creative because, you know, one statement may lead to another question, to another statement, and all of a sudden you have this really elegant solution that you would have never thought of otherwise. And I find some of the complexities around some of the risks that you're dealing with are usually involving operational criticality, safety of people, safety of equipment, safety of community safety of process, whatever it may be, you're integrating something complex into something else complex. So you really have to bring your best foot forward to solve those problems and really help people focus on the best solution. Now, you may take a couple runs at that. So I like where your head is at with regard to the creativity. So I sometimes, while saying, okay, for this risk, here are, let's say, top three mitigations. I'm going to write those down, create a copy of them so everyone can see them. I probably, after the meeting, saying, I don't think we got the best here. And then so I may bring that up in another meeting or I may ask a follow-up questions or I may bolt on an article saying, hey, I've seen this. Or I may bring in a subject matter expert from another operation someone in the States that's also done this to help spool some additional creativity. 
So I think that's part of your job as a project manager saying, hey, like, I, I think we did good. I think we have a good mitigation. I think it works right now, but I, I do think we can push it a little bit more. We can etch a little bit more out of this and we can get a better solution. That's going to give us greater value, reduce the risk, create better certainty around this scenario. So I think, again, stepping back and noticing because you don't want to over fatigue your team either, right? And just hammer in on a specific thing over and over and over again, because sometimes your mind just needs time, time for it to soak, time for it to sink in, time for you to discuss it with your other teammates as well. So just allowing that space and time and kind of realizing when your team has hit that proverbial wall, I guess, and saying, I'm going to kind of back out of this one right now and let's maybe switch it up a little bit and we'll come back to this a little bit later. So I like your thoughts around creativity and trying to get the best out of your team to find the most creative solution. It's a back and forth dance for sure. This explains why all of my best ideas happen 10 seconds after I hit send on email. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for make validating that experience for me. Appreciate it. <laughs> so uh, there's one particular meeting that happens in the project management world, and it's often done wrong. And that's the retrospective. Because I've been in some really great retrospectives and I've been in some absolutely terrible ones that just turn into giant finger-pointing, blaming fests that are awful and toxic and terrible. But I've also had some really supportive ones that I have grown as a human being and not just as a developer because they were just so incredibly positive and empowering. I was wondering if you have some tips and tricks up your sleeve for running a good retrospective. Yeah, great question. And we kind of look at them as lesson learned. So we use a little bit of a different nomenclature there. But when we go into those learning moments, so and for me, kind of similar to the sprint modality as well, those retrospectives, I mean, they're occurring throughout, you're not waiting till the final final end. I like to have those learning sessions occur throughout my project. So we're always pulling forward learnings so that we can ask ourselves that immediate question can i implement this right now can i bring that learning to bear today to create value for the team and the reason i say that first mike is because when you can show your team that this learning can be evaluated assessed and implemented that sparks great involvement and creation. Often, like you said, those learnings, retrospectives can turn into finger pointing. You did this. No, you didn't this. You should have done this first. I didn't get the memo, whatever it may be. And ultimately, you're going to come to some conclusion at the end of that. Some, we shall do this, or we're going to do this better, or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, like an action list or action points or whatever, right? Yeah. And often, maybe you two gentlemen have experience that you could share as well. That list evaporates into thin air <laughs> and you're on to your next yeah. project. And you're like, what about those great learnings that we just pulled forward? <laughs> like, didn't we just go through this two months ago? So bringing the formality of those learnings early into the project really, really, truly helps it 
disables finger pointing because people still have to get through the project. But more importantly, you change the concept around the learning from finger pointing to how can we create value for our next iteration? You know, we're about to leave feed design and move into detailed design. How can we now show the greater team what we learned during this phase and why this learning is important? And then transfer that all the way down the remainder of the life cycle so that we create that culture of learning. And when you create that culture of learning inside your project, that's when you're creating that intrinsic value and you're starting to pull away those finger pointing moments because really what you're doing is you're allowing time and space for people to say, hey, mistakes are going to happen. By nature, this is a project. It's something unique and generally it's never been done before. You know, you may have done parts of it, but it's something that's different and unique and it's not absolutely repetitive over and over and over again. So how do we learn together from that and how do we create that culture together? I find that helps. I find the opposite is when we've just done it at the end of the project and we all get together and you know have some pizza and if the project didn't really go well oh yeah it can get really really intense because everyone's guard is up at that point and they're really defensive because their careers could be on the line or that could be around bonus time or or whatever it may be and someone is trying to kind of move on to a new project whereas you're doing throughout the project it just becomes normalized and it becomes, again, something where you're just learning and you're creating together. And there's a lot of power in that, I've found. And I've learned that that process, I think, more specifically when I was working in the energy industry. They do that really well. They create that culture of just learning. And how do we get better? How do we get a little bit more improved? And, and really that came out of their safety program. How do we keep people safe? How do we keep these critical systems from not exploding? How do we do this better tomorrow so the system runs as it's intended and everyone goes home to their family safely? So all of a sudden you drop that finger pointing and you're really just looking at constant, continuous improvement, just setting that culture of just getting better and better and better. Yeah, it sounds like you're constantly taking the lid off the kettle to prevent it from boiling over regularly throughout the entire process which is a great strategy I like that one thank you for thanks for highlighting that yeah I, I, I like the i like the kettle i'm gonna use that mike all right cool and you get this situation where everything culminates at once and you get all the feedback coming in at the same time and it's kind of hard to track what they're referencing because you have to specifically bring up the thing that happened whereas if it already happened if it literally just happened well then it's fresh in people's minds and then you can really think more about that in a direct capacity and one thing that does come to mind for example is say just as an example you forget to create a database migration or maybe your database migration fails and you lose a bunch of data that your customers need. And so in that moment, you could either save that feedback and just quickly do that migration or in manually insert the data somehow, or you could talk about it and say, look, look, this is what happened and this is what we're gonna do to fix it right now. And this is the solution. And then have that discussion and then take the time to really fix it so it doesn't happen again without really like crazy 
constantly reaching for the fastest solution to appease your customers or whatever. And so I think it does help a lot. But on the other hand, it's a lot easier said than done because you're in that situation of panic and you want to solve the problem as quickly as possible. And also, at the end of the day, you consider the good and the bad and the we did well, we didn't do well, all that stuff from the retrospective, you consider it in relation to the goal of the sprint, which may in fact be, oh, we released this particular feature or this set of features. And so oftentimes I think we either misguide ourselves with the idea that it's all in relation to some end goal, Whereas, at least from what I understand from you, Mark, it sounds like we get the most value from assessing what happened, not in relation to the product itself, but in relation to the process. It sounds odd because, you know, product management, but do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I definitely like the take on it. And really, what are you showing when you do this? You are showing your clients or your end user. And again, as a concept, I'm sitting at that project owner level, right? It's kind of like hip to hip, kind of think of it like that. So you're showing those owners, those customers, your maturity. Because everyone knows mistakes are going to happen. Things are going to derail on a project. None of them are completely smooth that I've ever been on. They all take a lot of effort, horsepower, and determination. So when you're bringing forward, this is what we're doing better. This is how this mistake will not happen again. This is the improvements that we've created from finding this issue that we've never encountered before. And here, owner, here's how it values your organization. And maybe that could be from some operational procedure that you provide them as value to them. And here's what we've done internally to de-risk this as well and to change it. And here's the value that it creates for you because this database needed to be updated 40 more times throughout the project. And ultimately, if we were to not fix this, you're running 40 more instances of database deletion or whatever that may be right so i think it shows your customer your real maturity as a project driven organization and really you're saying we're really looking out for all your best interests and this may also happen to you and now here's your procedure so that when you become operational you can automatically de-risk this scenario as well and i think that's the value in having those exercises is really again looking at it from a process perspective and it could be a people perspective too but you know a people perspective you could be fatigued or you hit a wrong button or whatever it may be in some instances you had the wrong tools but usually there's something there a control mechanism you can put in place to help safeguard that in the future and that that will come from an administrative procedure and engineering whatever you may put in place to solve that right so when i look at it it's more of creating value on the team creating trust on the team creating a team atmosphere where people can come forward because i think the worst problem or the worst potential from a business perspective from a consulting perspective from an owner's perspective is to have these problems and you bury them and you're just covering them up and all of a sudden you have no risks on your project everything qas perfectly you smoothly transition methodically through your gates 
and everything passes its first test 100%. And if you've been in the business long enough, I think you're gonna be like, oh, something is lacking here in the quality department. Something's lacking in the learning department. And you don't even have to ask those questions anymore. You just know that something is not going right. So I, I think by proving that model true for sophisticated clients, I think you're showing them like, hey, I'm the right person for this job and, and this is why I have the right team with me and this is what we're able to create for you. But that could be just my perspective as well. So, I'm curious. I have a friend who is recently received her PMP certification as project manager. And I was talking to her and I told her that we had this interview coming up with you today and she was like, oh, I want to know. <laughs> she, she has a question for you. I thought it was an interesting one because part of this whole process is you have to maintain your certification by, and I don't understand this personally, something called PDUs. And she was wondering if you actually find value in the PDUs and maintaining your PMP certification and what your opinions on that might be. Yeah, great question. So once you've passed or get accredited with your PMP, so your project management professional, similar to engineering and other disciplines, you are required to continue your professional development and create those PDUs. And basically saying, I commit to a lifelong learning of project management methodology, skills, tactics, techniques. And in a pretty sure 60 PDUs for every three years you need to maintain in order to maintain your designation. So almost creating this KPI scenario where you have to verify and validate that you are indeed doing that. I must admit, after passing my PMP many, many, many years ago, the last thing I wanted to do was start down this 60 PDU road. And, you know, early in my career, I would leave them all to the end and then I'd be scrambling to read material and learn something and get my PDUs. But over time, that's changed. I find I easily get them now. So here's a great example. I recently just took some Agile project management courses to try to up my knowledge around Agile. I feel traditional gated and hybrid and Agile are all really starting to kind of come together. So I wanted to get some more understanding around what that means and, and find my way into that Agile space. So that's a whole lot of PDUs just right there, just from learning. Additionally, I like to take very novice at Python. So I take these Python coding courses. That's a bunch of PDUs that are able to be pulled forward there. So I think the longer you spend in the profession, the easier it gets to maintain that designation and to get that 60 PDU level. Because I think you naturally just evolve more and you become more interested in what you're doing as a person. And obviously, as a project manager, you're practicing your technique and you're refining that every year. So you're in that space, so to speak, and you're connected to that space. I think it would be pretty challenging if you weren't connected to project management and you had to maintain that designation. I think that would start to get a little bit tougher because you would lose that connectivity, but the PDUs themselves bind you back to the core principles of project management. So I, I do think by default, there is some intuitiveness behind the program. But again, when I was earlier in my career and younger, I was like, oh, this is tough stuff. 
What are some of the ways that you can acquire those BDUs in a meaningful way? Uh, some of the ways, so yeah, great question. Some of the ways are just by practicing project management. I believe just by being a project manager, being active in project management itself, you get somewhere like five PDUs just from doing, creating a paper, doing some write-ups, creating content around project management is going to get you a good chunk of PDUs, attending project management seminars, courses, conferences. Again, it's almost for every hour you're going to get a PDU equivalent. So there's lots of ways. So this podcast is all just a way for you. Does it count? Does it count? We got to know. Yeah. I figured this out now. I I, got to figure this out now. Is there an educational component involved in educating other project managers? We need at least one person to write in that they learned something. Then Okay. <laughs> you hear that, everybody? <laughs> Got to write in. Tell us that you learned something here. <laughs> Just one little thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, good. I like that. That's well put. I, I want to I pick your brain more a little bit, Mark. Okay. I heard you mention Agile. So I want to ask you what you think about Agile in general and we're extending that into product management. Yeah, that's such a really good question. And I'm not an expert on Agile, so I just really want to put that out there for anyone listening. I'm just really starting my journey. And my core background is in pure play, traditional project management, gate style project management, uh, even a little bit of a hybrid, if you want to call it as well. So when I was going through the exercise of Agile, I found it fascinating, really, really fascinating because it started off in a comparability mode. You know, this is how we're going to do it here. And this is how traditional does it. This is how Agile does it in sprints. And this is traditional's waterfall. And it was doing this for a lot of the learning. But coming from such an extensive background of project management, the classification of waterfall just didn't fit with how I was doing project management. So I see naturally this hybrid approach evolving or occurring. And when I say that, I mean each client that you deal with, each customer, a lot of them already have their own methodologies built in. Not all, but I mean, a lot are sophisticated. Like if you deal with the government, they have methodologies put in place. If you deal with post-secondary institutes, for example, again, they're going to have methodologies. If you're dealing with a fairly sophisticated commercial builder, everyone's got some project management process now that are a part of their business and how they go about doing things. So no matter what your core method is, it has to find its way into the customer's methodology. And you may still have that 90% agile solution, but I think as a project manager, you really got to start thinking, how do I service the customer in the best way? And I think that really involves finding that connectivity between, in our instance, what concepts process would be and what is the client really used to? And how do I show 
and marry those two together so that it brings the best value and brings forward the best creative solution and does it in a way that's cost effective on schedule and with the highest level of quality. So I found the agile lectures fascinating because you can see as the profession of project management as a whole developing across many industries, many facets and becoming more and more sophisticated. There's more project managers today than there ever has been in history. Well, they're all building processes. They're all putting together tools, techniques, organizational planning tools, and they're all creating them from their level of experience and engagement. So you have this ability here that needs to almost transcend between organizations and create this, we call it bridging agreement or a process bridging alignment. And that in itself is almost a change management process that takes time because you've got to understand the end user. What are they doing? How do they go about their business? What am I doing? And can we bring that together? So I found it enlightening, but I immediately start thinking about it from a completely different perspective just because of the background that I have. So I'm really eager to continue to dive into that world I'm really excited to actually, I would really be excited to lead an Agile project and see that from beginning to end because you really learn from doing. So once you get inside that process and you're able to execute upon it, well, you can pull so many variables away from it. And then ultimately, again, provide a better service package for your customer. Absolutely. And I know from my experience as well, I've experienced a lot of companies say they do agile or they practice agile. But then when you really join the company and you see the way that they work at, like you said, it becomes a process. They have their own process. And as far as I understand anyway, you know, having attended many agile meetups and speaking to some agile specialists, it sounds to me like agile really means responsivity the ability to adapt to changes in the environment. And so, like you said, being able to meet your customer with their needs and their process becomes far more important than your process, right? Your process is often dictated by your customer. And that's the reality of the business world, as far as I can see. I, I really like that. And I think as a project manager, you can get really connected to your process as well and saying, no, no, we're going to do this. This is the one we're going to do. I don't want to do a different one. I don't want to do this one. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny how everybody uses this word agile now. It's really a buzzword. That's a lot of what I say now. It's mostly a buzzword. If somebody asks me if I practice agile, I don't really like to answer that question because it's like a complex question. How do you answer that question? Just to give our audience a little bit of understanding because I just attended an agile meetup and it was really fascinating to learn. They were talking about what you call change management and it was actually all about that. But one of the things that I took from this meetup, which was really helpful for me, is you have different agile flavors. One of them is, of course, Scrum. Another is XPP extreme programming. One is DSDM. So you may have heard these RAD, UP or unified process. Another one is lean. And then of course, Kanban. So the interesting thing to me is they are all about process. And some of them maybe not so much as like Scrum, which is very process driven and also very opinionated about 
how you approach certain situations. For example, scrum teams are only up to 10 people. <laughs> so the team size matters. And so a lot of this goes to process. And my question to you, as somebody who's maybe seen this and compared it to the traditional PM practices, do you find that these are maybe driving us in the opposite direction away from progress in terms of meeting the customer with their process because of them adding so much process? Or do you find that they actually help guide businesses to give them that structure and that process that they require? Oh yeah. That's, that's a really, that's a really technical question. Um, I, I gotta, I gotta let the wheels turn a little bit on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I think this really gets back for me if I'm, grasping the totality of that question you just asked me, Sean. I think this really gets back to the original statement of defining or determining what your customer, how to best bridge in or bolt into your customer. Because from an agile perspective, I really appreciate how the agile embraces change change in requirements gathering cycle that's constantly moving and learning and changing and iterating i was like that's a wonderful cycle when you're dealing with the complete unknown let's say you want to launch a satellite into space to do geospatial observation of forestry well there's a lot of unknowns there and there's probably only a few people that have done that and if we're going to tackle this tomorrow we probably want to move into that agile type of environment where we're iterating and learning as we go and not waiting right till the end to determine if this works or not because there's a lot of to me having to do that project there'd be a lot of risk involved in actually literally launching this thing off the ground so I think from that perspective, you have this great thought and great process that guides the change management. Now, having said that, I think when you move into other areas, for example, let's just move back to the energy industry for a minute. By default, because of how inherently dangerous those workflows or those projects can be, you're going to want a very rigorous, checked, risked, mitigated, operationally integrity, safety focused type of process. Uh, now, if you're developing the geospatial code, again, let's flip back to the satellites. If you're doing that part and you haven't developed that code before, that may be a very agile perspective that you want to take. But then maybe to stay with that you know, satellite analogy, that geospatial analogy, but the actual rocket that's going to take it up into space, that would probably flip back to a very quality-driven, risk-adverse, operational integrity process. So I think as projects start to become more and more complex, I think it's really inherent for the team, the project sponsor, the project executive, the project team to sit down and really say, what process benefits us best in which area if we're going to look at this from a programming perspective and i think that's where you start to bring in these hybrid type of thoughts as well because maybe you just want to do one methodology throughout and you just this is what we're going to do because this is kind of what we know but maybe there's another way in there and maybe there's let's do a little bit of agile here because that's going to get us the best results and we can prove out our model a little bit quicker for less cost but again this area over here where we're actually physically going to be moving something 
through the atmosphere, well, that may require a little bit more of a stringent approach. And again, more engineering, more quality testing, et cetera. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that interesting idea of how agile relates to product management. So that was really, I think, helpful for myself. And I know that a lot of other programmers have had some exposure to agile. So really helpful to draw those comparisons and understand where product management relates to agile. And I admittedly still have a lot to learn in that space as well. So that's my new journey. That's where I'm taking myself is to learn product development, product management, agile management, and try to enhance my skill set. And get those credits. And yeah, and get those credits and get those PDUs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sure they're coming right. up soon. He did it all for the PDU. PDU, PDU. <laughs> it should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, Mark, it's been, it's, it's been, uh, this went really fast. I'm really happy that you took some time to have this talk with us. This is really great. I feel like I learned something. And uh, so for people out there who are listening right now, maybe want to get in touch with you and ask you some more questions. What's their best channel? What's the best choice of options there? Yeah. And I just want to thank you both again for doing round two with me. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot just about podcasting and all the software that comes with it, setting up and, and you guys were super patient again to do it. So I have a lot of gratitude there. So I just want to say thanks. And yes, if you just have questions, you want to have a chat about project management, you want to just talk about ideas. And yes, if there's a client out there, of course, that wants to get in touch concept projects, please email me at mark at concept.ca. And that's concept with a K. I'm also very forward on LinkedIn. You'll find me there as well. Please connect. I think that's a great area for us to connect and go back and forth on different topics. I'm definitely open to chatting about all things project management and just open to learning from everyone out there as well. It's such a neat little place to be able to kind of create things. So those are probably the best areas to connect. Right on. Right on. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes for your LinkedIn as well as your email address so they can reach you, Mark. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Mark, and we'll hopefully have you on some other time. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a great chat for sure. Thanks again, guys. Take care. Hey, folks. Mike here. Got a bit of an outro for you today. Wanted to let you know that once again, this episode has been brought to you by just Sean and I. Because we love technology and we care about developers. We know how hard this career can be and we wanted to do whatever we could to help you navigate your whole career or just a single uncooperative confusing line of code. If you found this or any other episode helpful please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your podcasting platform of choice. If you have any questions and would like to get in touch with us you can join us on our Discord at bit.ly slash web dash perspectives. That's bit.ly slash web dash perspectives. This isn't to say that we wouldn't love to team up with a sponsor. We just haven't had that opportunity yet. <laughs> <laughs>